Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you, and I would encourage you to turn to our passage this morning, which will be Psalm 130. And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to just mention about this psalm, that there is no specific author that's given, uh, and so we don't know exactly who wrote it. And a lot of times when you know the author, you can tie it to a specific situation in their life. Uh, For example, a lot of the psalms that David has written, uh, you can see what part of his life, was he going through a trial, was he going through uh, an exciting time in life, and you can kind of get a little uh, understanding of the heart behind the psalm, but we don't have that in this one, Uh, but instead we see at the very beginning, you see that it says a psalm of ascent, or of of ascents, and if you look, if you turn a page back, you'll see Psalm 119. And if you're going through this in your daily Bible reading, Psalm 119 is usually a long one, so it takes a little bit longer to get through. But then you look after that and you're like, wow, there's a bunch of short ones. I can get through 15 psalms and as much time as it took me to go through Psalm 119. Um, But those 15 psalms are grouped together as the Psalm of Ascents. And a lot of people will believe and understand these Psalm of Ascents to be used by individuals as they're making their way to Jerusalem. Uh, They would make their journey there. A lot of times they would be making sacrifice in Jerusalem. Uh, So the Psalm of Ascent, and the reason they call it Ascent is because Jerusalem is up on a hill. So a lot of times from any direction really you're going, you're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, And you'll see a lot of that language in other parts of Isle going up to Jerusalem. It's it's the physical location of going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Some other people will look at it and say, well, it it could have reference to uh, the priests as they're actually going to make the sacrifice and actually going to go before the Lord's. And they're making their way up the stairs of the temple to go into meeting with the Lord and carrying out their duties before the Lord's. But either way, it is coming to the Lord's. Uh, and that's the psalm of ascents, and we're going to see later that that's, that's a big part of this, specifically for 130, looking specifically at how it is a confession of sin. And just saying, as you go to the Lord, making sure your heart is right before the Lord. And so that would be a priority. And especially as you think, those going to Jerusalem, having those sacrifices... Knowing they're coming before a holy God with their sacrifice and wanting to make sure their heart is right before the Lord as they make that sacrifice. So that's a little background to this uh, psalm that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, and before we read the psalm itself, I want to just make mention that there's, there's four sections in this psalm. And so you're like, eight verses. How can you make four sections out of that? But uh, even the spacing in your Bible might have it in the each two verses, one and two, three and four, five and six, and seven and eight. And we're going to look at how there's a little different focus in each of those sections, uh, different than the one that is before it and the one that comes afterwards, and to see how they are actually uh, four kind of different sections, have four focuses So, and each of those are going to correlate with four points this morning, and I want to read those off for you if you're a note taker, just because I don't put them on the screen, and I'll reiterate them as we come to each of the points. But the first point is going to be, hope begins with realizing the depth of sin. Hope begins with realizing the depth of sin, and that's going to be tied to verses one and two. Uh, The second point is going to be, hope is possible due to the mercy of of a savior hope is possible due to the mercy of a savior 
And that will be tied to verses 3 and 4, coming out of verses 3 and 4. The third point is going to be hope is found in the words of the Lord. Hope is found in the words of the Lord. And that will come out of verses 5 and 6. And then finally in verses 7 and 8, a shorter one, hope is available. I just want to end on that note that hope is available. Uh, And so those will be the four main points that we're looking at today. And the big picture that we're looking at is hope is is there and available for us as sinners. Uh, And so coming before the Lord and laying our sin down at Him and confessing that, uh, we see that there is hope for us, which is an encouragement and both a challenge this morning. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 130. We're going to read all eight verses of the psalm, and I am reading from the English Standard Version this morning. So Psalm 130 says this, a song of ascents, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." So looking at this passage, uh, we'll notice this very first section. We're going to notice that there's a different focus on who is the focal point with each of these sections. And it starts off with the first one being the focus on the author himself. If you go through those first two verses, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. (coughs) So a lot of it's on... What he is doing, his condition, where he is at. So the focus is on the author. And the very first verse there says he's crying out of the depths for the Lord. Now, the depths is very important to understand what that means as we look at the rest of this chapter. So I would just like you to picture yourself out in the water. And so you're out in the water, and the water is just too deep for you to stance. Uh, So it's too deep for you to stand, and you've been there for a while, and you're feeling weak. You're feeling weak, you're out in the depths, and then you look around to try to find safety, and all you see is water. So you're struggling. And so, and you're struggling, and the struggle is more than physical, it's mental as you're seeing all of this, and there's this anguish and saying, man, I'm struggling for survival. And if something doesn't come here, I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, And so I know I can't save myself because there's nowhere to swim to and uh, there's no one in sight right now to save me. And so I'm, I'm in trouble. And so I can't save myself. That's the position that the author is placing us in. That's the position that he's talking about. Out of these depths where I can't save myself, I'm in trouble. I'm struggling with things around me. That's the position he's in. Now, often we have this idea of being in the depths. That is through the Psalms. Uh, we, had, we just sang a song about Psalm 62, and that's specifically David's. And so where he's talking, and, and that's at one point where he's saying, God, I, I need you. And so I'm going to wait on you. And that's another psalm where he is specifically in the depths and needing deliverance from the Lord. So he's, his soul is going to wait on the Lord to bring that deliverance. 
Or we could also look at a few other ones from David. Uh, Psalm 57, 1. Uh, David's calling on the Lord as he's pursued by Saul, uh, when, King Saul. And he writes this. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in, yours, uh, for in, my, for in you, my soul take refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. David's looking at his current situation as he's being chased by his boss, King Saul, and looking and saying, this is the storms of destruction. And you'd look at the rest of that psalm and you see he's calling out to the Lord for deliverance. He's in that idea of depths, like he is struggling. And so he needs the Lord's help. Or we could look at Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 and 5, uh, when David's being pursued by Absalom, his very own son who's trying to take his throne, and it's his flesh and blood. So at this point, he writes this. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So even in this passage, you see this idea of despair, this idea of being in the depths, being surrounded. He's saying, I will not fear, but there's thousands of people that are fighting against me right now. These people, not only are they the ones that followed me when I was king, but now they're coming around and saying, God's not going to give him deliverance. He must have done something bad in order for his son to be able to rise like this. And he's just crying out to the Lord and saying, God, I need you. I won't fear because you are there, but I need you because I'm in the depths here. So we could look at many, multiple other examples, but I want to point out that there is a very significant difference than the song we sang from Psalm 62 or the two passages that I read uh, that are, again, from David. They're all in the depths, but there's a different reason why. The reason why in those passages that I read was because the enemies from the outside were closing in. The enemies from the outside, and they knew, I cannot survive, I cannot move on unless God helps because the enemies from the outside are coming. But our passage here in Psalm 130 is this. The psalmist is saying, there's an enemy within that's taking over. It's my very own sin that is taking over. And so my sin is there and I'm feeling in the depths because of my sin, because of what I have chosen to do. That's why I feel like I'm drowning. That's why I feel like the walls are closing in and I have nothing that I can do to save myself. So these depths are being felt are due to the chasm sin creates between man's fallenness and God's holiness. That chasm is huge, and that's the reason that that despair is being felt, mainly because he knows, I can do nothing to save myself from my sin. The sin that I commit, I have to go to somebody else. That's why he's crying out to the Lord for mercy. He's going to say, oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice of pleas for mercy. He's noticing a couple things about God in this point. He's noticing, and we'll see it even in the next section a little bit more, that he's noticing that God is a just God. Sins will not go unpunished. It may happen after we pass this life, uh, but a lot of times we feel the consequences of sin taking place right now as we're living. 
through various ways that the Lord uses. But sin will not go unpunished. God is just. But he's also noticing here, God is merciful. God is merciful. That's why I'm calling to him, because he is the one that can have mercy here. So hope begins with realizing the depth of our sin, realizing that it puts us in the depths. Now, we notice that this is sin, and you may be like, how do you get that from those two verses? We get clues from the next section, which we'll get to in a second, where he's talking about his iniquities and forgiveness. So it's clear here that he's talking about sin is what is bringing him to those depths. We know from Romans 3.23 that none of us in this room and none of us listening on it online are exempt from sin. It says we're all sinners. We all fall short. We all engage in this. So that doesn't mean we just take it for granted and say, all right, that's everybody's problem. But we notice we all have this struggle. We're all in the position of the, the psalmist that we see here where he, he sees his sin. And we want to be in a position where we're crying out to God because we want restored relationship with him. That should be our heart's desire. That should be our plea. I'm sure there's been sin crea- uh, committed even this morning by individuals in this room. And so sin is prevalent. I mean, so we're in relationship with one another. There are times where our selfishness, our own desires, things creep in and we allow that to take control of us rather than desiring and following what God wants for us. I'm sure with a group this size that there's also probably sin that's being currently hidden and kept secret. People don't know about it. And it's easier for us to keep it secret because we know it's going to cause some problems uh, when it's exposed. If we were to confess that, if we were to bring it to the light. My question for each of us is, do we take sin seriously? Do we understand that it truly is a separator between us and God and puts us in a position of being in the depths? Now we remember this song of ascents, these are being sung by people that are coming up, either bringing sacrifice to the Lord, but they're coming to the, the city of the Lord, Jerusalem. They're feeling this idea of being in the depths. All too often we don't treat sin as serious as we should. We don't understand its impact and come to the point of crying out for mercy to God, the only one who can do anything about our sin. At times, we're more concerned about how others will view us if we open up about our sin rather than being most concerned about the one that matters the most, God's, and his concern for sin and his desire for that to be away from us. We need to follow the example given to us by the psalmist. We need to understand the impact of sin and we need to have our lives crying out to the Lord for his mercy. So why do we cry out to God? Why him? This almost tells us kind of in this next stanza of this psalm of ascent that we find in verses 3 and 4. And we're going to see that hope is possible due to the mercy of a Savior. Hope is possible due to the mercy of a Savior. Let's review verses 3 and 4 at this time. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Now, I want to take a quick note and notice that the focus of these verses has shifted. Shifted away from the author, shifted to the Lord. If he's, he's talking directly to the Lord and says, Lord, if, if you're the one that marks iniquities, who could stand before you? If you are that righteous judge, who could stand before you? But then he comes back and says, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Uh, so the, the main subject and the main kind of focal points in this, this second stanza is the Lord. It shifted to him. He starts off with kind of this rhetorical question. And so that he asks, and essentially is saying, Lord, if you were one to just tally up and keep record of sins, who could stand before you in judgment? If that was your role and that was the only thing you did as it related to sin was just to tally them up, mark them up, keep record of them, and hold them against us. Who could stand for that? We get an answer from this in Psalm 1 uh, as we see where it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, but the way of the wicked will perish Without the mercy and grace of God, we all fall into the category of the wicked. We all fall into the category of those who are carrying the burden of our own sins. So we go and say, if God were to just stack them up, make that list, and say, all right, how do you measure? Here's my standard, and your sins go way above and beyond, we would have no hope. We would all fall under Romans 6.23 when it says, for the wages of sin our death. We would have no hope if all of our sins were tallied up and counted against us. We would have no hope if only one sin was tallied up and held against us. We would have no hope at all. This is why the author is seeing himself in these depths, seeing himself in this place of just, I can't do anything. I am in a place where I need God's mercy because I can't do anything about this burden of sin that I'm carrying. This is why he's crying out to God. Now, verse 4 signifies a transition in this little stanza, a huge transition that gives us hope. And it says, but with you, there is forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. So not only is he judge, but he also is the merciful one who has the ability and the power to forgive our sins. That mercy that the author was crying out for, it's possible. It's there. It's possible because God is the one that forgives. 1 John 1, 9 confirms what the psalmist says about God as it reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the one that has the power to, to forgive, to cleanse us, to make us righteous. That is the power that he has. What a significant truth do these verses teach us? The significant truth that these teach us is God's grace is more powerful than absolutely any sin we could commit. I want to say that for us one more time. God's grace is more powerful than absolutely any sin we could commit. God doesn't simply stack up our sins for the purpose of condemning us. But rather, he sent his son to die on the cross so we could be forgiven of those sins. And he could say, see those sins that you committed? They are paid for in full. And now I'm going to put them to the depths. I'm going to put my righteousness on you. 
the power of God's grace and forgiveness does not drive us to think that he's soft on sin, that he doesn't care about it that much, that all you have to do is turn to him and that he doesn't care about it anymore, but rather it should show us the power that he has over sin and should drive us to have a unique and significant respect for him. And that's what the psalmist is getting at at the end of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He's the only one that can take care of sins. We can't do it ourselves. We would be in the depths. He's the only one that can see us in the depths and say, come and say, I will pull you out of the depths. I will forgive your sins. I will extend mercy to you. Hope is possible due to the mercy of a Savior. In the same way that the psalmist cries out for forgiveness for his sins, we also can receive forgiveness for our sins. Again, we looked at 1 John 1, 9, and it tells us uh, that we need to confess our sins for them to be forgiven. We need to respond to the Lord and say, yes, I know I have sinned. I know I have broken your law. I know I have come against you and become your enemy. But I want to confess that. I want to be forgiven. I want to lay these sins at your feet. Lay them at the cross. I want to surrender my life to you. Peter, while talking to a crowd in Acts 3.19, tells the people to repent of their sins and to turn from them that their sins may be blotted out. Confessing and turning from our sin is possible. Forgiveness is being offered. What is holding us back? There are times when our pride holds us back. We don't want to admit that we're wrong to our spouse we don't want to admit that we're wrong to a boss. We don't want to admit that we're wrong to an employee. We don't want to admit that we're wrong to a child. Our pride keeps us from confessing. If this is the case, our pride blinds us to the seriousness of sin. We become more concerned about the appearance from others than we do of what God thinks of our sin. There are times that knowing the consequences of our sin also holds us back from repenting. We keep hidden from our spouses <clears throat> a potential affair that is taking place now or has taken place in the past or even in an inappropriate relationship that we're engaged in because, wow, that would be difficult to confess that, to bring it to the lights and have it forgiven and have that relationship restored. We keep hidden from our family and friends unethical work practices that we are engaging in because we know the company is happy with us because we're making more money for them. But we have to do some things that we know are not right in order to make that happen. So we don't want people to look at us wrong, so we hide it. We keep hidden from fellow church members anger that we have with someone that may be across the sanctuary in this room. For one reason or another, we're frustrated with them and we harbor that and we let it grow rather than taking care of it and actually confessing that before the Lord and saying, I am wrong in having this sin. Because we want to be looked good upon other people in church. That becomes more important than our, how we are viewed before the Lord, so we hide it. We may hide from our family the addiction to pornography because it's something that just draws at us and so we want to continue to engage in it and we keep it hidden because we're embarrassed about it. Or we keep hidden from our parents conversations that we're having on our phones or other digital means 
or quite possibly physical acts. We hide that from them that we're engaging in, whether it's immorality or whether it's bullying or a whole list of other things. We keep that hidden because we know it's wrong. We're embarrassed of it, but we're still drawn to it and desiring to engage in it. We are more concerned with the view of others at times than we are what God thinks about it. We don't understand how sin only progresses in nature, only gets stronger, only gets worse, only rots within us as, it, as we hold on to it longer and longer. We need to see our sin as us being in the depths, being drowned if we aren't rescued by a Savior. But we also need to see the Lord is merciful. The Lord is there to forgive. So even though we're in the depths, we can be forgiven based on his mercy. The first section of chapter 2 tells us about the importance of sin. The second section shows of the power of God through forgiveness. And now we're going to look at the third stanza, the third section, verses 5 and 6, and see that hope is found in the words of the Lord's. And this brings us again, and we're going to read this and see the focus shift once again. And it says this in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. This idea, it shifts back again to the author where he's saying, I'm waiting on the Lord. I made this plea to him. I realized my sin. I plead for mercy. Now I'm going to wait for his response. He's waiting and his soul is waiting. Everything, this is the focus on the author. Now this waiting is one that's of joyous expectation, one that would be causing celebration because we are expecting a positive response. We know God is just and we know God is forgiving and we know that when we come to him, he can and will extend mercy if we come to him with a genuine heart. Now there's multiple ways that we can be waiting on something or someone and this is not the case of a child that's waiting on, uh, they get in trouble they have sinned, and they're waiting for the dad to come home because mom's like, hey, I let your dad know, and he's coming home. I've been on the receiving end of those way too many times, and I know that's not the same type of waiting because you're thinking, oh, if I'm good, or maybe they'll forget. Hopefully dad has to work late, and so then by the time he comes home, he doesn't have time to do anything. Or if I do all my chores, and if I clean the kitchen, mom will be like, oh, he's okay now. He didn't do anything wrong. But it's this idea of dread and what can I do? How do I change my circumstances before dad gets home? That's not the type of waiting that we're talking about here. Or maybe you're called into a meeting for your boss, with your boss, and you're like, I don't have any clue why we're meeting in this. And it's like, did I do something wrong that he's got to talk to me? Did I do something right that he's going to give me a raise? I don't know what it is. So you're going back and forth. And again, that's not a very positive waiting. And so there's a nervousness that's in there. That during that waiting, and it's not a waiting as if you're making a long journey. And all of a sudden you're going from point A to point B, and from the back of the car you're hearing, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then i got to go potty every five miles if you have multiple children like I do, where you're like, come on, let's just finally get to the destination because this is torture. That's not the type of waiting that we see here. 
we see the type of waiting mentioned here. It is one of that positive expectation where he's saying, I know my sin. I am grieved over my sin. But I know that there is a greater Savior. There is someone that can forgive. There is someone that wants to forgive me. And I'm just waiting to receive his mercy and his blessing as I come to him asking for those sins to be forgiven. It's a hopeful waiting where you're expecting that positive news and you're expecting there to be cause for celebration. The author uses in there a picture, a picture of a watchman waiting for the morning. Uh, And so this would be a night watchman that would be uh, performing his duties at night. So things are dark. And it's his responsibility to make sure that if the enemy attacks, he sounds the alarm, the rest of the army can come. And he's thinking, I can't see anything out there. It's dark. The enemy could be approaching. So there is kind of this, there is a little bit of fear that's there. And he's thinking, the morning can't come soon enough. When that light comes and exposes what's around us and we'll be able to see everything that's going on, that'll make things a little bit, I look forward to that. And he's also thinking, when the morning comes, my shift is over. My shift is over. I've done my duty. The weight of responsibility is being lifted, is being released. So he's saying, morning only brings good things for me. So I'm expecting longingly, the morning is a good thing. It's kind of like clocking out a little bit. Being able to see what's around you, it's positive. That's the same way. That's the picture the author is giving us and saying, that's what type of waiting on the Lord with my soul, my soul waiting. That's exactly what we sung about Psalm 62, I believe it was. Uh, That idea of my soul waits for the Lord. It's that positive longing that we have, waiting for the Lord to come. It's hope-filled. We, today, are in a great time of blessing. We have the written word of God before us, and he says, my hope is in the word of the Lord. I'm expectingly hoping that. We have it written for us. We have it marked down what God wants for us. So we don't even need to look for the future. We have God giving us what he wants us to know. We have confirmation in such passages as Romans 10.9, which says uh, God does forgive when it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we're in that depths and we confess and we believe, it says you will be saved. You will be drawn up out of those, those depths of feeling the insurmountable pressure of our sin that's around us. We've already talked about 1 John 1.9 and how God shows his faithfulness through his forgiveness as we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. We see that justice popping up again. And saying, we have to take sin seriously. God is a just God. But we also can have the celebration of saying, he is a merciful and righteous and and loving and forgiving God. We can have that encouragement in knowing that our hope is found in the Lord. We can have the same hope that the psalmist talks about because, because God reveals both his justice and mercy. We see that sin is very serious, and we see that God forgives when we are repentant and turn from sin with a genuine heart. We're going to see in this final transition as we look in verses 7 and 8, we're going to see this focus shift one more time 
and it shifts a little bit different. Uh, and I want to go ahead and we'll read those two verses as a reminder. But there's a significant difference than the rest, from the rest of the passage. So let's read verses 7 and 8. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So initially what we see is, once again, the focus shifts to the Lord. And we see hope in the Lord. For the, with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's what the Lord does in his relationship to that people. And so there's a shift from the author back to the Lord. Now there is a very, another very significant shift that we see from verses 1 to 6 and 7 and 8. What we see in verses 1 through 6 is the relationship and th the back and forth is going between the author and the Lord. Where he's worried about his sin. He is wanting to have hope. He is searching for mercy from the Lord. And so they're going back and forth. Uh, the difference here, we see at the very beginning, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. It's gone from one-to-one -one relationship where he's calling on the faith community. And saying, you need to be going to the Lord's. And so you need to find your hope in the Lord's. So it's gone to what David often writes are very personal. The Psalms that are like this are very personal. Going through hard times, hard situations, calling out to the Lord, feeling the depths. So you feel that emotion as you're reading through the Psalms. And all of a sudden we see here this shift. Going from that very personal to saying, I want joy to be had beyond myself. I want the nation to be feeling this hope that I am feeling. So there's almost uh, an implied answer to his waiting, his soul waiting on the Lord, where he says, I, I know my sin, I call for mercy, and I'm waiting on an answer from the Lord. And as he goes to the people, he says, oh, Israel, you too need to find your hope in the Lord. I've experienced it. This is what God has done for me. He has forgiven me of my sins. And he continues, I felt this steadfast love. With him, plentiful is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel. So he's giving almost from personal experience and calling out to the nation and saying, you too can find hope. And that's this fourth point. Hope is available. Hope is available. He's saying it's not just for one person. He said it's available to those that call on him. Those that have iniquities that place their trust in God. It's as if he's carrying on that positive level of excitement that he has and saying, I, I felt it and I want you to feel it too. It's exploding over to them. The psalmist is communicating that there is no sin that is too great for God to be able to redeem us from. There is no sin too great from God to be able to redeem us from. Nothing goes beyond his power. Nothing goes beyond his mercy. The forgiveness the psalmist experienced on a personal level, he's saying can be experienced by the nation. They are called to put their hope in God's. I would take that as an extreme encouragement for us that there is no sin that is too great for God that's in our lives. No sin that we have engaged in either in the past or in the present or the sins that will come in the future that we can't go to God and say, God, this is a burden for me. I feel like I'm in the depths as I'm engaged in this. 
forgive me. Give me your mercy. I need it. His power to redeem extends beyond anything we have done. We can place our hope in him and cry out for mercy for all of our wrongdoings. Does this mean that we're not going to feel the consequences of our sin, at least the earthly consequences? No, because sin oftentimes breaks relationship with those that are around us, whether it's family, whether it's work, whether it's neighbors. A lot of times sin destroys those relationships and destroys other things, and we have to work through the consequences of those. But we can be in right relationship with God, and we can pursue being in right relationship with others whom we have wronged. That's a blessing for us. I'd ask each one of us to think about our own lives. Are we harboring hidden sin that nobody else knows about? Is there sin that needs to be confessed that is, it's my secret sin, it's what I do in private. We need to understand that God is a just God. And he will judge. But we also need to know that he has mercy and we can bring that to him. Are we willingly engaging in sin because we continually desire it? We need to be praying and say, God, make me feel like this sin is in the depths. Give me a hatred for sin. Help it to be a pit in my stomach and something that I just want to spit out because it's so detestable to me. We need to pray that God would give us the same heart as the psalmist had towards sin. We need to see that sin destroys and will lead to us being in that place of the depths, a feeling like we are unable to free ourselves from its grasp because we can't. We need to cry out to God that he would make our hearts sensitive to sin and cry out to God for his mercy. No matter what consequences come about due to confessing our sin, bringing it to the light, and pursuing reconciliation with those whom we sinned against, We need to realize that harboring our sin will only increase its destruction. Sin is serious, and if we're God's children, we need to understand and respond to the seriousness of sin. But as we saw in the passage, we are not without hope. God, in his great mercy, can forgive and heal of our sin. There is no sin that goes beyond his mercy and is too great for him to forgive. No sin goes beyond his mercy and is too great for him to forgive. I wanted to repeat that multiple times throughout this morning because that's what we see in the passage. This should bring us great joy, should bring that expectant joy that we see from the psalmist to know a Savior who is more powerful than any sin that is present in our lives, and we need to repent and just put it before him and say, Lord, I am sorry that I have transgressed your law. I would encourage you today to put your hope in God. Experience his steadfast love and repent of your sin. Now, I'm going to come down to the main floor afterwards, and if you want someone, you're like, I just need someone to pray with, I would love to be able to pray with you. Or maybe you say, I'm not comfortable coming down in the front. Look for someone that has that one of those little rectangle things. That's the elders and the deacons that are around. They often wear those and just say, I need someone to pray with. Or find someone around you that you can be praying with to say, I have this weight. I have this burden. I just need to confess it before the Lord. <clears throat> or maybe you say, I, want, I just need to take care of this in my own seat where I'm sitting right now and get right before the Lord confessing this sin. 
I would encourage you to do that. And if you do that, I would still say, tell somebody. Let somebody know, someone that can come alongside, because if that's a sin you're currently dealing with, temptation is still going to come tomorrow. It'll be there in the future, and it's good to have this community of faith coming alongside one another and saying, God created us to be a support for one another, to strengthen one another, so let's carry each other's burdens. Let somebody know. Begin that process of allowing God to bring healing. Healing in our lives between us and him and healing and uh, brokenness of relationship that our sin has caused. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we are thankful that you brought us encouragement in your word through Psalm 130. We are thankful that you caused the psalmist to write this down and that your spirit was right alongside him, guiding him as it was written for our encouragement. God, we know we are sinners. We know we fall short of your standard. We know we fall short of what you desire from us, and we are sorry for that. We know you are a just God. God, we also thank you because we are undeserving of your mercy, and yet you show it to us anyways. We are undeserving of your forgiveness, yet you extend it to us anyways. God, I pray for individuals in this room that if we are harboring sin, that if we're just, it's, it's got a hold in our heart and we don't want to get rid of it. It's hidden, people don't know about it, and we're embarrassed of it. God, I pray that we would have courage to confess it before you. We would have courage to restore relationships that have been broken because of our sin. Help us not to delay. Help us to do that today. Because we want to expectantly and with great joy look forward to your mercy and your forgiveness, your restoration, your redemption. We love you, Lord. Thank you for giving us what we do not deserve. Help us to respond in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.